What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 36 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with the faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is an honor to be on this leadership journey with you, is we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today, as we get ready to wrap up a great 2018 on the Lynch with a Leader podcast, I am so thrilled to get to introduce you today to an amazing leader. He's a guy that I've heard about for years. Uh, If you live in the city of Atlanta, there's a few iconic brands in the city of Atlanta. One is Coca-Cola, of course, but the other is Chick-fil-A. Growing up on the south side of Atlanta, we uh, had a lot of good friends that worked at Chick-fil-A headquarters. And this gentleman's name is a name that I've heard throughout the years, especially tied in to the bowl game, the Chick-fil-A bowl. Steve Robinson, that you're going to get to meet today, is the former executive vice president and chief marketing officer of Chick-fil-A. He served for many, many years with that iconic brand, and his fingerprints are all over it. Everything we know today to be Chick-fil-A, he was probably in the boardroom and he was probably in the decision-making room when it came to be. You're going to learn a ton about branding. You're going to learn a ton about dreaming and the vision that they had. But even more, you're going to learn how all of those things blended together with an incredible faith in the Lord and helping him become the man that he is today. So I hope you'll pull up a chair, and I hope you'll listen in for my time with Steve Robinson from Chick-fil-A. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining me for this episode on Lynch with a Leader. It is my pleasure, Mike. Real treat. Well, as an as an Atlanta native, I've known of you, and we were talking off the air before we went on. I think we've got a lot of mutual friends through the years down at uh, Chick-fil-A. When you were growing up in Fairhope, Alabama, did you ever dream you would be doing what you're doing today? <laughs> well, I had dreams, but quite frankly, uh, they weren't as, as big as what the Lord eventually uh, unwrapped for me. Um, I was actually born in Fairhope, but I grew up in Foley, which is just east of Fairhope. And I was raised in the home of John and Martha Robinson. Dad was a uh, a native of Ohio, and he met my wife at Ohio State, and they moved to South Alabama because even though they were Ohioans, my dad hated the cold weather. But he grew up on a farm where they raised hybrid seed corn. So he came to South Alabama and started a hybrid seed corn business. So I'm telling you this because I am going to answer your question. Um, and uh, he did very well with that hybrid seed corn business uh, until the m- mid-60s. Uh, the Farm Subsidy Act was passed. I won't get into all the details of it, but the essence of it was in South Alabama, it paid farmers more money to grow trees or soybeans than he could pay them to rent their land to raise corn. And he literally got 
he got run out of business and wow. um, he started a small manufacturing business <clears throat> and started manufacturing stuff that he had created and nut gathering tool and an automated livestock watering fountain and uh, a hamburger press. Uh, no rhyme or reason other than, they, other than they were things that he saw a need for and he created them and he built the machinery to manufacture them and but he had one problem. He had to figure out how to sell them. <laughs> wow. And so so my teenage years, I spent a lot of time not only in the shop building and producing this stuff, I spent a lot of time on the road with my father uh, out calling on wholesalers and retailers uh, trying to sell those products. And even though I'd grown up learning to work with my hands and loved to build things and repair things, I soon discovered that nothing happens unless somebody sells something. And uh, I know that may not, that, that may sound a little counter to some of what we hear in our culture today, but it's still true. Um, <clears throat> and so as I traveled with him and saw the challenges of selling products that were good, but unknown, I really fell in love with the whole idea of how do you build not only great products, but build products that have uh, uh, an added value perception, we call it brand now, uh, products that, that create, create a demand rather than having try to push a wet noodle up the hill to sell them. And so that's where I actually started dreaming about a career in marketing and uh, went to junior college uh, in South Alabama and then transferred to Auburn and so based upon that experience of, of riding the roads of Alabama with my entrepreneur father, uh, I chose to study marketing at Auburn University. And so to answer your question, my dream of career, my ideal dream of a, of a career was in Atlanta, working for a Coca-Cola or a Delta or Six Flags or some consumer-oriented business. And being a part of the, the, the action of building not just a business, but building a brand that really uh, served people and created loyalty. And uh, and so that's what I did. I Even though I can still work on my own cars, I fell in love with the whole marketing brand proposition. Was it Went something... Was it something that just came instinctive to you, you feel like, that that when you got I, I into that so. and you began to see it? I think so. Uh, I, I think I love my dad immensely. I learned a lot from him, and he was he was the typical uh, greatest generation entrepreneur, but he was uh, eat up with being uh, an engineer and solving a, a consumer problem, but it was hard for him to... Uh, put his head around, okay, how do I develop not only the product, but the messaging <clears throat> that, that clearly communicates this is, a, this is a felt need in your life and this product helps solves it. Mm. It was a constant struggle. <clears throat> and, I, and I'm watching this. I have a ringside seat to this. And, um, uh, and, yet, and I fell in love with what I was starting to see in the marketplace with the evolution of great brands, whether it was from P&G or General Mills or Kellogg's or, you know, motor oil companies or petroleum companies. It didn't matter. I, 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 just, I just fell in love with the whole idea of, of uh, branding and marketing something that was not just um, 
not just serving somebody's need today, but actually could, could become a focal important point in their life, mm. uh, uh, something they couldn't live without. I think that's probably the best way to summarize it. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> I didn't know how, I didn't know what that all looked like, but I became fascinated by that. So when I was at Auburn, I went to my dean in the College of Business, uh, George Horton, wonderful man. Um, I said, Dr. Horton, I have an interest in, in um, a marketing career, but I really want to communicate on the brand side and communications. What do you think I should do? Um, because a lot of the interviews I was having for Auburn was a road warrior in sales, and mm -hmm. I'd kind of done that shtick with my dad. And he said, well, you know, I think you ought to major. Don't do an MBA. He says, I think you ought to major in brand and marketing communications, and I can think of three universities that do it very, very well. Now, this is 1971. Wow. I'm dating, I'm dating myself. And he said Stanford, um, Columbia, and Northwestern. And uh, I didn't particularly want to go all the way to the West Coast, and I didn't particularly want to live in New York, and my family roots were in the Midwest. And I said, well, tell me about Northwestern. He said, well, they have an advertising and journalism major. It's in the school of Medill School of Journalism. He said all the teachers are practitioners who have, retired and now they teach at Northwestern and that caught my attention. What do you know? Academics who had actually done something. Yep. And, um, uh, he said you would in that career, I was impressed that he knew so much about it. He'd obviously studied it. And he said, in that curriculum, you will, you'll have Kate classes every quarter, but you'll also have a real case project with either, either an ad agency or a client. And uh, you will be put on a team, and you'll work with that team. And every quarter, your part of your grade is going to be based upon your case project presentation. I said, well, I would love to go interview them. So he called the uh, dean up there, a guy by the name of Vernon Freiberger. And uh, Dr. Freiberger told him, well, Dr. Horton, I'm afraid that class, next year's class is already closed out. And I don't know what George told to him, God bless him. But he, he convinced him to give me an interview, and uh, so I went up there. I was already engaged to my wife, Diane, so she and I went up along with my parents for escorts. Still did that back then. Wow. And uh, <laughs> so we went to Evanston. Yeah, we went to Evanston and um, sat down with him and spent the better part of the day with him and several of the professors, and when the day was over, he said, well, I can't promise anything because the class is closed out, but in two weeks or less, I'll, I'll let you know. And I just prayed. I didn't even pursue another interview at New, at, um, up in New York at, at Columbia or Stanford. I decided I'd wait to hear from him first. And uh, so I, I, I'm getting beat by another call. Let me keep going. Um, in less than a week, I got a letter from him. And I had been accepted. <clears throat> and I, are you there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I, I was, I was amazed. And uh, so, I, I have several milestones in my life and my career that were, they were literally 
beyond my expectation God moments. Yep. And that was one of them. That was one of them. To get into Northwestern, I was the only student south of the Mason-Dixon line, they admitted. Um, they'd never had a student in Bedill from Auburn. Somehow, I don't know how that happened, but I got in. And I had a great experience. And um, I did fine. I did, I did well in the program. Had great job offers coming out. And so that's that's where the dream actually started to exceed my expectation, Mike, was just getting into Northwestern because that that degree, uh, that experience opened all kinds of doors. And I got the interview with corporations that I'm convinced I otherwise would not have had an opportunity to interview with. And uh, eventually took a job. My first job was with Texas Instruments in Dallas in their semiconductor group. I was part of the marketing communications group in charge of selling this new product called a handheld calculator. Wow. Yeah. And it was the scientific high-end calculators. It was They were targeting engineers and architects and chemists and high-end um, engineering-type students, mathematics. And so I go to TI, and my role is to help <clears throat> figure out how to market these products, not with mass media, but targeted media, because I've obviously I've just described very specific target audiences. Right. And so I learned how to use direct mail and trade journals, and I'm suddenly working in direct response, direct order marketing. And I'm having to... to to figure out how to communicate um, user benefit in a in a short amount of words and the right audience delivery. So I learned a ton about how to use direct mail and direct response to the trade journals. Of course, there was no internet back then. And I had not had any of that at Northwestern. Wow. Everything in Northwestern had been in more traditional platforms of communications. And so that was, you know, that first job turned out to be uh, another huge milestone because I got a learning experience that was like another part of my MBA or my master's program. But I was there about a year. And um, interesting, we were selling, we, we were having a lot of success. We were literally selling more product than they could produce. And engineers have a they, they they had developed a strategy that they were going to preempt anyone else entering the market and they were going to do that not necessarily for just product features but by driving the price down and uh that kind of encountered a lot of what i'd been taught at auburn and northwestern about building a brand and adding so much perceived value that you actually could demand a premium price yeah and we we literally had direct mail on the floor. We couldn't mail because we couldn't produce enough product, and they they were taking the prices down, and, and it really frustrated me. And in the midst of that, the director of marketing at Six Flags Over Texas calls me. His name was Dan House, and I was in Northwestern with his brother, Bob. He was a tremendous guy, a, a close friend, classmate at Northwestern. And Dan's calling. He says, listen, I've heard about you from uh, Dr. Freiberger and from Bob, and I've got an opening in the marketing department here. You wouldn't actually be working at Six Flags. You'd be working at a 
Marine Life Park next door that we have a management contract with, but you'd be working for Six Flags and you'd have a dotted line relationship to me and anybody in my department you needed help from. And so the short of that, Mike, is I went to work. I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna do that because Six Flags was a a definitely a brand customer driven business brand experience business. So here was another completely different paradigm of marketing than what I'd been doing at TI. Instead of, instead of feature and price driven, it was experience driven and it was adding value to command a, a good price. And uh, so I went to work there. It was The park was called Seven Seas. It was a SeaWorld type park right next door to Six Flags Over Texas. They had a one-year contract. And we um, we actually turned things around enough. They made money. They they started making money. The park wow. had never made money made money before. I learned so much from um, mentors at Six Flags Over Texas, as well as Six Flags Incorporated. The the VP of marketing at Six Flags Inc. really tutored me on their style of planning and marketing, planning and budgeting. And he came out of brand management, so. Um, that was unbelievable. And yep. Dan Howes had come Dan Howes had come through brand marketing to, to Six Flags. And again, I'll shorten the story. After a little over the year, a year of the city of Arlington, who owned the park, decided <clears throat> they didn't want to invest any more in the park. And Six Flags had a clause that said if they weren't gonna continue to invest in the park and keep it fresh, Six Flags would walk away from the deal, and they did. And so I got called in one day and said, guess what? Here's your two-week severance. We don't have a management contract, so we've got to let you go. And I'd been driving to and from work at Six Flags slash Seven Seas for a little over a year from Plano, which is north of Dallas, all the way to Arlington, which is in the Mid-Cities area. And uh, it's a wonder I got home that night because most of the time driving home, I had I had tears in my eyes. It was it had been such a rewarding but hard experience, and suddenly it was over. And not to mention the fact that I had um, a wife, and my sweet wife had had a baby while I was at Seven Seas, mm-hmm. our daughter, and I'm unemployed. And uh, I go home, and I tell Diane what's happened. We both had a good cry together, and she said, well, don't worry about it. Guy's got something better in store. Hmm. Something good's got to happen. And uh, we had enough cash to last about three months. And um, that alone is a story. (laughs) I don't know how we accumulated three months of cash, but we had. And uh, less than a month, uh, I'm I'm on the marketplace looking for jobs, but Six Flags calls back and said, listen, we're opening a brand new attraction in Orlando. Is kind of a, um, a a replica of Movie Land Wax Museum out in California that does over a million people a year near Disney. And we'd like for you to go down and be the sales and promotions manager and help open that attraction and start that marketing department. So it gave me a chance to get back with Six Flags, which I had great relationships and I'd learned them a, a ton. And so we went, we moved to Orlando and I was at that attraction almost three years. And um, 
towards the somewhere towards the middle of my third, and we did great. We we it got up and going. It was making money. It was right next to SeaWorld, great location. It was called the Stars Hall of Fame. Yeah. About halfway through the third year, um, uh, Six Flags calls again. Um, Aaron McCoy, who was the general manager of Six Flags over Georgia, had taken a new job. He was leaving Six Flags to become the president and CEO for the Texas State Fair. Um, he was a Texas boy. He wanted to go home. and um, so, um, Errol, again, I'm shortening the story. He promoted Spurgeon Richardson, um, to become the general manager. And so I, I went to Six Flags. I started as a sales and promotions manager, Six Flags over Georgia in Atlanta. So part of my dream to work in Atlanta had come true. Wow. I got to Atlanta and I was working for one of the greatest brands, certainly in the leisure business in Atlanta and I've been, I'm being tutored by Spurgeon Richardson, who was considered one of the premier marketing directors in the Six Flags organization. And, um, I did that. I, I, I got to correct the story a little bit. I actually had that role for about a year before Errol left. And, um, when he did leave, then Spurgeon promoted me to become the marketing director at Six Flags over Georgia. So unbelievably, uh, at the ripe old age of 28, <clears throat> uh, Spurge was gracious enough to allow me to be the marketing director for Six Flags Over Georgia, which had typically done around 2.4, 2.5 million visitors a year. And uh, I was the director of marketing for the, the full season of 1978, 68, 1968. No, no, that's not right. 19. Um, 78, yeah, okay. 1978, and we did 2.8 million uh, in attendance. We had a record growth, and so I was the director of marketing for roughly three years. And during that time, Mike, I met Chick Fil A because we had pitched them on building a restaurant in the park as a way to introduce the Chick Fil A brand and sample the product. They were only in malls; they had less than 100 stores. They were mostly in the Southeast states. I think at that time, seven Southeast states. So we had pitched them on, why don't we, why don't you build a restaurant in the park? <clears throat> Great way to introduce the brand, sample the product. We got over two and a half million people a year going through here. That's where I got to know Jimmy Collins, who was yep. the um, COO for True Cathy. Spent time with him and the legal counsel and the CFO. They didn't have a marketing director. And uh, found a location, designed a store, did the pro forma, and they decided not to do it because they couldn't make money in the site. And, of course, <clears throat> I told them all along, you're not going to make money here. Uh, you're going to hurt our, our normal chicken sales. If anybody's going to make money here, we're going to make money. You're having the opportunity to build your brand. And they decided they couldn't afford to have a lost leader to build their brand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So those plans and those drawings went in the in the closet. And uh, it's I'll fast forward. Uh, it's now 1980, summer of 80. And um, my phone rings one late one 
afternoon. It's actually early evening in my office at Six Flags over Georgia, and it's Jimmy Collins again. And uh, Jimmy basically calls and says, uh, listen, um, we don't have a marketing department. We don't really have an experienced marketing director. And we need one. Now, Mike, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I already knew that or you would have done the deal with me. <laughs> already, I've already tried to help you out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I already knew you didn't have a marketing department. But anyway, he says, but we've been searching for a, a corporate director of marketing. Your name keeps coming up through different sources. We've met you. I know you've got a remarkable job with Six Flags, but I'm calling to see if you would even have an interest in talking. Now, <clears throat> what's been going on before he made that call was several things. Uh, Six Flags had gone through, had been owned by Penn, Penn Central Railway. They had gone through bankruptcy. The new corporation that came out of that, that held Six Flags, was Penco. And they, they were starving for cash. Mm. To meet their obligations. And Six Flags was suddenly being squeezed for cash. We were under investing in the parks. <clears throat> and the experience for the customer was becoming rather a little stagnant. We weren't having any growth in the marketing budget, and it wasn't the same business that I joined. Yep. And so that's in the back of my mind. And Six Flags Incorporated had asked me to become part of the corporate staff, but it was in California, and I turned them down. So um, I, I realized that if I was stayed with Six Flags, I'd probably always be with the park in Atlanta. And on top of that, um, I had committed to be the chairman of a fundraising program at our church. and. Um, we had just submitted a pledge. It, let's just say it was a faith pledge because it was. Yep. That unless God did something, we, we didn't know how we would meet it. But we felt, we really felt led and compelled to support the effort to build a new edu educational space that would also benefit the Christian school at Eastside Baptist Church. And so we were all in. But we knew it was, it was going to be a challenge. And so that's all in the back of my mind when Jimmy's calling me. And so I told him, I said, Jimmy, I'd love to visit with you. I, um, I got a lot of respect for you guys. And also in the back of my mind, I know they're private. They're not publicly held. I clearly have a sense of what their values are. Uh, I love their product. I love their concept of the operator-run stores, the independent contractor-run stores. I love their culture. I knew several Chick-fil-A operators. Um, so I had a sense of what the business was about, but they they were still very much in the the infant stage mm -hmm. as a business. And as a brand, they were virtually unknown. And so I told him, yes, I'd love to interview. Now, Mike, you need to understand, when I, when I interviewed for, for Six Flags with Dan Howells back in Texas, which was my entree to Six Flags. I spent an entire Saturday with him and his team, and at the end of the day, he, he offered me the job. And so I'm thinking, okay, this thing with 
Chick-fil-A, I, you know, what can a few days hurt? It, it may turn out to be something incredible. If nothing else, I'll get to know them better and I'll learn something. Well, Mike, I interviewed with them for over five months. Good night. Um, <laughs> I found wow. out wow that Chick-fil-A is very, very thorough when they come to select talent. And not just staff talent, but operator talent. So the best way to summarize the process is to tell you the story of my last interview with Truett Cathy. I had already spent time with him, Jimmy, <clears throat> and other major leaders in the business, Dan Cathy, etc. I'm sitting in Truett's office, and it's now um, it's now early December 1980. And uh, he and I had lunch together and talked about a lot of things. And most of his conversation with me didn't have anything to do with job. It was about me and my family, what we like to do, and what did I like to read. And I really. So I, I finally looked at Truett. He he would have been almost 60 then. He was about my dad's age. I said, Truett, you know, I've been doing this for over five months stealth, and this has been a real challenge. Um, and I have a high regard for Six Flags and my boss, Spurgeon Richardson. And, and uh, I don't know where this is going, so I don't want to put that in jeopardy. Well, Here's here's my question. What are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And am I the guy? And he was eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich. He put it down. He looked at me, kind of long pause. And I'm beginning to think, Mike, I may have asked the wrong question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I bet. And he, he says, um, he had a little squeaky voice. He says, you know, I have absolutely no no idea. All I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. I thought, wow. The ideal marketing candidate, he doesn't know what it is, but he knows he doesn't want to do it. Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. But this I do know, if you're the guy, I want to know that you and I can work together until one of us dies, and then we can trust each other and have fun. How about that? How about that? Then there's another long pause. You know, I'm shocked. I hadn't said anything yet. He says, the most important decisions we make around here is who we invite into the business. Mm. We don't rush that process. I said, well, do you think you're close? <laughs> <laughs> he said, I, I think we'll know whether you're our guy in a couple of weeks. I got. I want to spend more time with Jimmy, and you'll, you'll hear something from Jimmy. Well... It was roughly two weeks later. It's almost Christmas. Jimmy calls. He said, hey, can you have dinner with my wife, Alita, and I? Bring Diane. Come down to our house. We went, We spent some more time with them. It was really their first time to interact with her. I think that was the real agenda, was get to know Diane. And so I asked him the same question. Jimmy, um, am I the guy? Am I a guy that you and Trude are looking for? I, I think I can help you guys. I think this is an unbelievable opportunity challenge. I don't have all the answers, but I'd love to learn and grow with you. And he said, well, I, I, I think, I think we're leaning that way, but I I'd like to have one more conversation with Druid and then I'll get back to you. Good grief. <laughs> so in a few days he calls, he said, um, 
we want to offer you the job. And he says, you'll be the, he says, you'll be the corporate director of marketing. As you probably figured out, you will have a clean slate. They had a couple of people that were doing marketing, but they didn't have marketing background. He said, you'll be able to build staff as you choose. Um, build a marketing plan as you choose. They didn't have a marketing plan. They didn't have a marketing budget. And he said, if you can start as, as early in January as you can start, uh, we'd love to have you. Wow. And he, and he offered me the salary over the phone. And uh, I immediately said, Jimmy, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. And um, in the back of my mind, I, I immediately thought about the commitment we made to Eastside. It was it was not going to be a problem because of that new salary offer. Yep. And um, I went home, told Diane we had another one of those good cries. On this time, it was a great one. It was good. Yeah, that's right. Much and better cry. I, yep. So I became the director of marketing for Six Flags. I mean, for Chick Fil A in January twelfth, nineteen eighty one. And uh, Jimmy, what he said was exactly what they delivered. I had um, I had a desk. It was in a trailer attached to their Butler building office. I had no windows. I had no staff. Um, my first hire was an administrative assistant. Uh, my next hire was not a staff member, but a consultant who worked with me in research who Worked with me for over 35 years, Dr. Ken Barnhart from Georgia State. Uh, I didn't hire a staff member until the next, that summer of 81, David Sires, who oh, yeah. had worked for me at Six Flags as an intern. How about that? Yep. And um, we, the journey started with those two people. And he and I, uh, David and I spent two years doing research, visiting operators, studying the business, formulating a marketing strategy to support the operators. Because uh, the first priority was to give them marketing resources for them to build their sales. Uh, brand was a was a was a way down the list because they were a captive audience business inside the mall. So the first priority was how do we take advantage of and leverage the the mall environment. And so that's how the journey started. And um, we didn't build the first freestander until 1986. And that's when brands started to become an issue because now Chick-fil-A had to become a destination, not something that people reacted to in the shopping experience. And um, yeah, so when I to bring a summary to your question, uh, Everything that happened from 1981 until the day I walked out the end of 2015 was beyond my expectation, Mike. I mean, I experienced the journey of building a brand, uh, driving a marketing plan that was focused on the entire customer experience, not just traditional communications, but the food experience, the hospitality experience, the store environment experience, the media experience the experience at events, uh, how to utilize media and how to utilize events, um, you know, from the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl to the Cow Campaign, now to the college football playoff. Uh, all those were part of the journey. And to be in a position to help lead my staff, um, 
make those strategic choices and negotiate those strategic options and build relationships with uh, agencies and media partners and event partners. And it was unbelievable. So um, I left, we, we, we started with no staff in 1981. When I left the marketing department, I had roughly 225 people in it. More agencies than I can count. Uh, sales went from a little over 100 million my first year to uh, 6.8 billion the year I left. Unbelievable. And they've grown at over a billion a year uh, the last two years that that I've been gone. I'm still on the board, but they ended 2017 with sales of nine billion dollars. That's crazy. That and uh, is crazy. The the brand was was hot. The brand was popular. The brand was hot uh, when I left. I was incredibly gratified and thankful that, um, as Jimmy used to say, I didn't have to leave with any uh, dirty footprints, any muddy footprints. Things were in great shape. Great staff was there. Momentum with the brain was there. Sales momentum was there. When I left sales, same-store sales growth was double-digit. And I, I would... I wouldn't. I would have to say now to get to your um, to get. I think to the heart of what you want to talk about is what is the most important thing I learned there. Is that a, is that an appropriate point? Absolutely, absolutely. The most the most important thing I learned at Chick Fil A, which I'm talking, I'm unpacking in a book I'm writing, um, probably would surprise people. It wasn't about developing the marketing strategies or the brand strategies or how to develop a product where we were able to command full price and not discount. The only brand in the fast food space that doesn't discount, doesn't deal. Uh, um, nothing. All those things were important. But the main thing I learned was culture trumps everything. Mm. Culture trumps everything. And leaders can either unconsciously or consciously choose to develop the right culture that will help their business prosper. It took me several years to understand the truth, Kathy, unconsciously, no, consciously, and I think naturally yep. focused on culture. Uh, when he said, uh, when I asked him, what do you expect from your marketing department director? And he said, I have no idea. All I know is I don't want to do it. He was telling me the truth. Yep. I never walked into his office one time where he told me what he wanted me to do. And that I, I can count on one hand the number of times I walk into him with a recommendation and he said, no, it, it wouldn't even be five fingers. He might say, let me think about it. But virtually every time he would support my recommendations, whether it was around media strategies, advertising, products, service innovation, it didn't matter. He did not focus on, he didn't, he didn't waste his time thinking about what my team and I were doing. He was more concerned about the culture that he and leadership were creating 
And as a result, he gave us, I, I, I call it in my book, he gave us a culture that was the soil of, of, of growing a great brand. Mm. The culture was the soil for Chick-fil-A to become a great brand. And it was not a mistake. It reflected his priorities, what was important to him. Many of them were spiritual priorities. Yeah. Uh, it reflected how he and Jimmy led the executive committee where we didn't even, we didn't just talk about strategies and tactics and budget, budgets, but we talked about what was going on in our families. We talked about the spiritual health of our staff. We talked about the spiritual health, uh, practical health of the marriages and our staffs and our departments. We focused on total person development in the business, not just professional development. We talked about um, not just the secular books we were reading. We talked about what we were reading in scripture was that was impacting how we thought about issues, how we made decisions, how we perceived wisdom. <clears throat> and 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 it, it, it actually was cemented early in my career in 1982 when in the crisis of the Carter year, and I'm not saying that to criticize Jimmy Carter, but it was during his, his season in the crisis of the Carter year, and inflation was double digit, interest rates were double digit. Our, our business hit a complete roadblock. Mm. And it was in the midst of that crisis that we went off two and a half days and wrote what is the corporate purpose for Chick-fil-A? We, we thought we were going to go try to figure out how to turn things around. <clears throat> and in turn, God changed the agenda. And we spent almost the entire meeting talking about, okay, why are we in business? Mm. Uh, because if we're not clear about why we're in business, how are we going to lead our team? How are we going to motivate our team? And how is our team going to make decisions about whether they even want to stay? Yeah. And uh, that's where we wrote the corporate purpose, which is um, Chick-fil-A exists to glorify God, honor God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Now, Mike, I'm sitting in that hotel room up the Lake Near for over two days working on this. <clears throat> and we had reviewed plans and budgets but it helped confirm and, and lock in my heart and my soul that I made the right career choice. Absolutely. Uh, because these men, starting with Truett and Jimmy, was more, were more interested in why Chick-fil-A existed. And the attitude in that meeting was if God chooses to preserve Chick-fil-A to his honor, if, if not, that's okay. Yep. And we, and we need to be prepared to be able to go back and tell staff and operators, here's why we exist. And if, if, we, if, we, if we rebound, if we prosper, we're, we're going to make sure this business glorifies and honors God. But we're going to be good stewards. <clears throat> we're going to do, do that being great stewards of people, money, the resources, the relationships that come through this business. And we're going to try to run a business that has a positive influence on every person that comes in contact with the business. Mm. <clears throat> and, the, and the issue there was how are we going? How are we going to be a, a how are we going to be representatives for Christ? Well, we're not going to be evangelists on soapbox. We're not going to use the business as an evangelistic soapbox. We're going to we're going to do it by the way we live our lives and the way we serve people. 
And that became the footing, the foundation footing of Chick-fil-A. It yeah. cemented in words the culture that Truett had already created. It, it wasn't a new idea. It simply was the first time they had put on paper the cultural underpinnings uh, that Truett had already, already in, in incorporated, inculcated into the business. And that, that corporate purpose still sits sits on a on a grant on a cement block out in front of the corporate office today. And it became the filter and the litmus test for virtually any major decision the executive committee wrestled with when I was there, and I'm sure it still is. Um, is this issue, is this opportunity, is this initiative, is this budget issue, does it represent good stewardship? Mm. Will it, it will it have an outcome that continues to honor God and the result will influence people positively? If this in any way isn't going to fulfill help fulfill that corporate purpose, then it's probably a bad idea. Yeah, that's so good. And <clears throat> it really reflected through its favorite Bible verse, which was Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be more valued than silver and gold. And so um, when I started getting focused on brand, once we hit the street with stores on the street, we had to worry about creating a compelling awareness and reasons for why you want to go buy McDonald's and these other brands and drive Chick-fil-A. When I started talking a lot about brand, um, it was a new idea at Chick-fil-A. And so I just fell back. I, I, it wasn't a gamesmanship. It, it was it was the reality. I fell back on what I had told Truett uh, up at Lake Lanier that Proverbs twenty two one is is the, the ultimate scriptural description of a great brand. Well, isn't that true? I've never thought about it that way. But you're exactly <laughs> right. Great, you know, it, I, I remember one day I was having a discussion about this Truett, and he said, "Well, isn't brand just a marketing?" Concepts and no truth. It's not a market. Brand is everything the business encapsulates. It's mm. everything the business represents. It's what that verse on your on your desk right there, twenty two one, is all about. It's the reputation of the business. But it, it's a reputation that people come to trust. And the the definition we used in marketing was the the brand ultimately is our promise of what people can trust about Chick Fil A. Mm. And that the corporate purpose, that brand promise, uh, became the foundations that were the board, the cornerstones of everything we did in marketing, every plan we ever wrote, every communications we ever wrote, um, every product we ever conceived, the the conception and the development of the hospitality model. How do we improve the promise of Chick-fil-A that people can trust? So whether it was a new product or second mile service, it was all about that. And um, so I had an unbelievable career. We did a lot of things, but at the core, my career was actually pretty simple. Um, how do we honor the corporate purpose? Mm. And how do we build the Chick-fil-A brand slash reputation? How how can we build a brand promise that people can trust? That means we gotta deliver, we gotta create and deliver a promise. We gotta tell them what the promise is. And then we gotta develop systems to deliver it. 
So that's what great brands do, not just those that have a spiritual heart, but great brands that's figure right. out how to deliver a brand promise consistently. And we spent a lot of time studying brands like Nike and Apple and Nordstrom's and Southwest Airlines and Zappos, et cetera, et cetera, um, because those were other companies, um, granted, more secular focused, but companies I had figured out singular focus on a brand promise, for example, Apple, simplicity. Yep. Um, they figured out how those companies had figured out how to develop a brand promise and then not just communicate it, but deliver it. Whether it was through technology, through service, through retail experience, through entertainment experience like Disney, didn't matter. And so our mission starting in the mid 60s was, was even though it took us a long time for the Chick-fil-A family to figure out what we were trying to do, we're here first and foremost to build a great brand, deliver on that brand. We're going to help operators deliver on that brand. And if we do that, operators are going to grow their sales. That's right. And they're going to, and they're going to grow their sales at a faster rate than anyone else in the industry. And it, it took time to build the infrastructure and the messaging underpinnings and their, and ultimately the momentum under all that that led to Chick-fil-A becoming a brand, not, not a sandwich, not, not just a restaurant, but a brand experience. Yep. And, and the irony is I look back on it as I was living it, but particularly as I look back on it and I've written about it, Mike, is that – Chick-fil-A was no different than what we were trying to do at Six Flags, and that was to create a customer brand experience that we promised and delivered on. Now, you might say, well, what was it? Well, the brand promise there was to hug your kids the Six Flags way. It wasn't about a roller coaster. It wasn't about a particular show. It was about emotional engagement with your children. And the journey as Chick-fil-A has been, how do we create an emotional engagement and an emotional relationship with customers at each and every Chick-fil-A restaurant they visit? And for that matter, even when they interact through media and events. So that's what was, those were the underpinnings that led to things like you know, the commitment to college football and the cow campaign, some of the great things that people traditionally think of uh, led to a, a whole innovation process and facility to figure out, okay, how do we deliver, continue to stay relevant and deliver on our brand promise um, better uh, with food and hospitality and with technology and with service model. It was all intentionally designed and developed and rolled out to just simply deliver on a brand promise where Chick-fil-A would become a brand that people couldn't live without. That's so good. And, and you know, and they've done such, cause I, we talked a little bit before we went on as a kid who grew up in Atlanta, South Atlanta, especially you're going to Hateville, Greenbrier mall, Shannon mall, eating in the stores, and, and then now seeing, I remember going to Virginia to college and people didn't know of Chick-fil-A. I mean, there was one in Lynchburg, right. but they didn't really That's know right. what it was. And to see right. 
to see what it is now. And I think everybody thinks of the cow campaign when, when you, when that was pitched to you guys. And when you heard that, was it something that you went, that's it. That is recognizable. That's memorable. Was it something that grabbed you right away? Was there pushback on that? Absolutely. Absolutely grabbed me right away. Wow. I'll tell you the story as quickly as I can. We've been, we hired the Richards group out of Dallas to help us crack the code on advertising that would break through advertising that didn't look like all the other fast food brands advertising that would create some sort of an emotional reaction, preferably a smile. Um, we wanted to say, hey, Chick-fil-A is unexpectedly fun. Uh, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Advertising that would break, make the brand, um, you know, those people are different. I think I need yeah. I, I might drop in there. I might drop by there. So we were with them about a year, and we, we were only able to do billboards. Uh, it was all we could afford 365 days out of the year, and only in our top 20 markets. And so uh, about a year into the relationship, they came in. They didn't even come in. They sent us six new billboard concepts, and and the gentleman who was working with them, Greg Ingram, <clears throat> brought them in and put them on my desk face down. I wasn't there. And I came back from a meeting, and I walked in, and he wasn't in there. I, I just turned them over. I knew they were due to come in. And I started turning them over, and Greg's a genius. He put the cow thing the last one on the right. So I go left to right, like most Americans do. Yep. And uh, I get to the these two cows painting Eat More Chicken up on a board, <laughs> and I absolutely lose it. I, absolutely, I, I start laughing. And Greg hears me, and he wanders down to my office and sticks his, walks into the door, and he's got a big smile on my face. He says, well, I guess you like it. <laughs> How about that? How about and I said, this is this is this is unbelievable. Here we are taking a shot at the beef guys, but it's 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 in fun. It's just most nobody's going to take an offense to how no. we've done it. Uh, we're saying, hey, we're the counter. We're the alternative to beef. We're the healthier alternative to beef. And oh, by the way, um, we have fun at Chick Fil A. So drop on in and try us. I mean, I picked up on all, all of it immediately. That's and of course, crazy. so did Greg and David Sayers was involved as well. So the three of us worked up a proposal, which I took to Jimmy. And I said, Jimmy, we want to run this billboard everywhere, but not all the markets can afford it for a full year. Can we underwrite it for 90 days and see if the operators get such a response that they would choose to pick up the expense and keep running it? And the longer the story is, we did that. And of the 20 markets, 19 of the markets said, we are not taking this down. And they renewed it, and we and, and that literally launched the campaign. Now, originally, it was just a billboard idea. Right. And because of the response we got, um, it was actually David and Greg that went back, at my urging, went back to Richards and said, look, we think you got something here that's a bigger idea than just one billboard. Take three months. What would this look like if this became a campaign? What if these cows became the iconic spokespeople for the spokesman, uh, spokes bovine um, for Chick-fil-A? I mean, they're they're renegade. They're funny. It's self-preservation. Um, it, it's it's the the uncola of burgers. That's right. What would a, what would a, what would a campaign look like? 
And they did that. And three months later, they came back with the first comprehensive campaign for TV and print and in-store, et cetera. And it took off. And my entire career, Cal Campaign, the focus was to keep it fresh, relevant, funny, yep. and to leverage it on every media platform we could. Um, since I've left, they're experimenting with um, other creative expressions. Uh, more targeted to storytelling. Um, we'll, they'll have to figure out how well that works. Um, but I was totally committed to the cow campaign because I, it was iconic. Yep. It was an instant read that, oh, that's Chick-fil-A. It made people laugh. And it kept us uh, top of mind in, in, a, in a marketplace where our media budget was a, wasn't even wasn't even 1% of the total fast food media marketplace. That's crazy. Did you hear that? That's crazy. It wasn't even 1% of the total media marketplace in fast food. And yet our campaign became iconic. Well, that's because of the power of the idea. That's right. It wasn't because because we were outspending everybody. Yep. So um, it it obviously had a major role. And then when we had enough stores around the country to start you know, <clears throat> going beyond just buying advertising and markets and going to regional and national, that's when we planted our flag in college football. It was the only thing we could do and do it well, uh, given our budgets. We just focused on that audience. We focused on that platform. And my goodness, it led to it led to licensed stores on campuses. It, of course, it started with the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, and it led to right. relationships with with conferences and and it ultimately national media buyers with ESPN came along and CBS. And of course now Chick-fil-A is part of the college football playoff program. And the bowl is now part of the new year six. And it's, it did wonders for the brand to just focus on that audience. Um, You know, you know, it makes me wonder and watching this evolution, just sort of with a front row seat here in Atlanta, it makes you wonder if you guys hadn't have hit the rub in 82 gone away, put down those purposes, figured out why, why you existed and who you were. Do you think if that tough time had not have come that the company would be experiencing all they're experiencing today? Do you think that that, that time getting away, writing that corporate mission statement, purpose statement was, really one of those things that was a game changer long-term for the organization? Absolutely. There's no question. Well, and let me tell you tangible expressions of why, Mike. Um, When I joined Chick-fil-A, they were, they were discounting. They were doing coupons and discounting like everybody else in the business. It was part of the paradigm of the business. And ironically, it still is. And uh, when we came out of, out of that experience in 82, simultaneously prior to that meeting, we had run a large couponing program, uh, which was they had a history with. And I endorsed it. You know, I didn't know any better. I'm still, I'm still learning. Well, the short of it is it blew up the budget. Uh, redemption blew up the budget. And so it added to our cash crisis. And uh, when we sat there working on that, why we exist, it, it suddenly dawned on me, we don't exist to drive transactions. Mm. 
We don't, we don't, we don't exist to be focused on just driving transactions and pushing warm bodies into the stores. We, we exist to serve people, to have a positive influence on people and give them a great experience. Well, if we do all that, we can charge full price. Yep. And so in 80, the, the back half of that year, we started the journey of getting out of couponing. Now, it took a long time, but we got out. We quit couponing. We quit discounting. And I think, I, Lord willing, I think they're still not doing it. They shouldn't be doing it. They don't need to do it. Right. Uh, when, you, when you have an Apple, when you have a BMW, when you have a Chick-fil-A, you don't have to discount. That's right. And um, uh, so that, that's one illustration. Um, uh, another illustration, as I referenced it earlier, but the corporate purpose became a, a tool of discipline with the executive committee. It led to the decision ultimately with Truett to, to get out of debt and operate purely on cash. And so the corporate purpose became, a, as I said earlier, a litmus test. Okay, we, we have limited resources in terms of people and money. Is any any potential initiative had to run through the filter? Is this great stewardship? All right. Is this the is this the best stewardship that ultimately will build the reputation of the brand, have positive influence, and and contribute to a reputation that honors God? Well, that's a high bar on how you spend how you utilize resources. And it, it developed within the executive committee a desire to not only be great stewards, but to pursue God's mind, his perspective, his wisdom, how we made choices and decisions. In fact, we even went off one year for a month, for a week in Chicago and studied under a professor at Wheaton, mm. the book of Proverbs, God's perspective on wisdom. How about that? Um, because... Um, we were making decisions together. We were not making them in unilateral silos. We were making decisions as a, as a team. And here we had a growing business, but we were constrained by um, cash. And we wanted to make sure every decision we made was the right choice. And I think the corporate purpose forced us into that kind of, that my point is, that kind of discipline. Uh, and then clearly the corporate purpose uh, influenced the kind of partnerships we did. Um, I mean, an example, I have nothing against the NFL, uh, but we couldn't do a partnership with the NFL because they operate, they, they play on Sundays. Right. Um, there, were, there were other partnerships that were either in conflict with Sundays or potentially in conflict with the values of the business and the family. Um, Clearly, the decision Truett demonstrated when he interviewed and hired me per permeated the business of how we select people. And, and I got to be honest with you, when your corporate purpose is what, what ours was, you got to select people that bring a, a mindset and a value base because every, every selection you make either makes the culture stronger or weaker. That's exactly right. So the corporate purpose became, as I said, it became a litmus test on how we steward people and money. It became a litmus test on obviously how we continue to look at selection. So um, people said, "Well, does that mean you only hire Christians?" No, that, we don't. That's not 
that's not true. Um, Chick-fil-A is very diverse. Um, there's people of different faiths, different ethnicity, but they understand what our corporate purpose is. And if, if they don't, if they can't be comfortable and operate in that environment, they tend to select themselves out. That's correct. It's not something that, it's not something that we have to, we have to do, but our responsibility is make them make sure they understand our corporate purpose is not just a bunch of words on a concrete block out in front of the building. Yeah. We believe in it. We're attempting to live it out. And you would be coming into an environment where you would be expecting to operate in that kind of expectation. And um, it, so those, those are probably some of the That's major. Really good. That's really good. How did you, and you had a faith and we'll, we'll start rounding down here. You had a faith coming into it and a growth coming into it. And you enter in a, a culture, especially even back then where, you know, Truett's heart and his, his passion for the Lord and all those kind of things. How did you grow spiritually during those crazy seasons, those 30 plus years, you were in the middle of this run at Chick-fil-A how did you, what are disciplines you put into your life to continue to grow spiritually during that time? It's a great question, Mike. I, I, I can tell you a lot about that. I'll, I'll pick up a few high, high watermarks. Um, I referenced, um, you know, what I went through in 1980 with being the chairman of, of a fundraising program at our church. So I'm now, I'm now in the midst of that campaign in the, in the, first two years of my career at Chick-fil-A. And um, my history with money, and I'm, I start here because it was, it was a crucial turning point in my life. Um, my history with money was, I, Diane and I agreed about virtually everything, but my history with stewardship, uh, tithing and offering was, I had tight hands. I was not, I was not a giver. And through the course of that campaign, my pastor at Eastside, Clark Hutchinson, unpacked Malachi 3, 8 through 12, where God tells Malachi, listen, I, have, I do hold something against you. You're robbing me. How are, how are we robbing you? You're robbing me of tithes and offerings. But then he unpacks a promise, which I had never seen. I never, I, I'd seen it, but I didn't really understand it, Mike. Uh, Malachi and, and Clark unpacked the promise that follows that verse about robbing. He said, listen, you obey me in, in this, this being tithes and offerings, and I will bless you beyond your wildest imagination. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm paraphrasing. And he also says, I will protect you from the devourer. I'll protect you from the, the the enemy. I'll protect you from the things that rob your crops and your vineyards and hurt your family. Now I'm a young dad, and I look and and Clark appropriately noted to our campaign committee that is the only place in Scripture where God says, "Test me in this," and That's the right. outcome is positive and not negative. Well, I I didn't know that. And so I made a decision, which obviously I shared with Diane. We're going to tithe. I'm I, I'm going to I'm actually going to enjoy it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to give beyond the tithe. 
I'm going to trust God to do whatever is necessary to, to meet our needs. And because um, Christ said, I came to fulfill the word. I didn't come to destroy it. That's right. Which means Malachi is still just as relevant as Matthew. And so I, part of my early experience with Chick-fil-A dovetailed that campaign. And then I get into the Chick-fil-A executive committee and I see the corporate P&L and I see Truett tithing the business. Uh, not just himself tithing, but the business at the bottom of the P&L. And I figured, you know what? It's good enough for this guy. It's good that? enough for me. And I saw, I saw, I think any member of the executive committee would tell you, I saw through those 35 plus years, God, not just bless Chick-fil-A, but I think in many cases, unknowingly protect Chick-fil-A um, and gave us discernment and wisdom clearly beyond our own natural ability in the decisions we made that reflect that promise. Uh, in Malachi, and I, you know, I, I, I then grew to appreciate obviously the the full the full uh, benefit of Scripture. Mm. I particularly fell in love with Psalm. Uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs. Yep. Uh, I got into a habit of reading a chapter of Proverbs every day because I did need wisdom. I knew I was in over my health, uh, over my head, in terms of my own personal capabilities and, and background and we had a tiger by the tail a growing business a, a growing network of operators that were counting on us to keep the brain relevant and help them grow their sales i needed wisdom beyond my natural ability and so i got to be a regular visitor i still am in proverbs and i, I found it to be one of the most compelling management books ever written amen it is, uh, it's not just the word of God. It is a management leadership book. And I read, I've read a lot of books and it's still the most practical, compelling book about leadership and relationships and personalities yep. that I've ever read. I completely, I completely, <laughs> so, and it's so funny. It, it, you would never know it until you break it open. I mean, you just wouldn't know it. You would never know it. No. And every day, every day. It's fresh. That's right. Paul talks about the, the scripture being fresh, new every day. It is fresh every day. And um, that that habit, fortunately, has led to habits of beyond just reading Proverbs. But I, I could give you a lot of illustrations. That's, that's, but that that and, and and so over time, what happened was the executive committee has already alluded. We we developed a spiritual appetite together to be the best stewards we could be. And we realized that we weren't smart enough in our own strength to lead Chick-fil-A without God's mind. That's right. Without his, his perspective. And so we all committed to not only study, you know, things like Proverbs and talk about spiritual issues together. We all committed to be um, good students of the word on our own. Um, and be willing to openly share things we were learning with each other um, as we, you know, grew in our own faith. So the executive committee became more than a management committee for me. It became a, um, a, 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 a 
a discipleship group, an accountability group, uh, a group as a result that became, uh, we had a willingness to speak truth to each other, even at times it was uncomfortable, but it was always in respect. That's right. And um, so we never, we never kept secrets from each other. And I, I think that is a huge, huge part of, of developing an incredible, a, a strong culture, I, not just Chick-fil-A, anywhere. Leaders must be transparent and truthful with each other. If they cannot be transparent and truthful with each other, they will not be transparent and truthful with the people they lead. You're right. Yeah. And um, that, that evolved in large part because the Zega committee committed to become be, be students of the word. That's so good. So, that is so good. Yeah. That is so good. Well, Steve, I cannot say your man, your time today. And the thing is I could sit and talk to you for hours. I've got 30 more questions and maybe we can get a re-engagement again in the future because I would love to dive in maybe sometime next year when you, when your book comes out, I'd love to dive yeah. in a little bit deeper on some of these things, but, Man, thank you so much for joining me today. And I know people are going to be blessed in a huge, huge way. I hope you enjoyed that time with Steve. You know, I always knew of the story of how everything came to be, but it was fascinating hearing the behind the scenes of the branding, the bowl game, and all of those things Steve had his hand in. You know, we're all living in a world that's so ever-changing, and it's been so neat to watch a company like Chick-fil-A be able to change, not only change with the times, but in a lot of ways, lead the change in restaurants and in what we expect. And man, guys like Steve Robinson, it's funny, you know, we we know of Truett Cathy, of course, the founder. We know of his son, Dan But it's amazing in every organization, there's men like Steve behind the scenes that are the brains. They are the people that help shift and create and keep us moving as leaders in the right direction. And what a leader Steve is. And I know he's still making his mark all over Atlanta through FCA and through all the other organizations that he is involved with now on boards and charities. And what a man. And what a what a uh, what a great time learning from him. And I think today my my takeaway from my time with Steve was dreaming. What a great dreamer! You know, when he came over to Chick Fil A from Six Flags, I wonder if he even knew all the dreams that God had placed in his heart and all the things that God had in store for Chick Fil A and for him. Well, what a great great story. Well. Episode 37 is going to be one that will be the final uh, fireworks for our 2018 year. In fact, we're closing 2018 and we're opening 2019. Uh, This podcast will come out on Monday, the 31st, with the legendary Ravi Zacharias. I don't know anybody who has become the spokesman for the Christian faith more than Ravi. I had the pleasure of sitting down with him for lunch a few years ago. And to be able to sit down now on a podcast interview that you get to listen into, to hear this brilliant mind break down faith, break down his journey, and break down where we are today in our country, it is 
going to be a blessing to you because it sure was a blessing to me. So today, if you enjoy this episode, go and share it with a friend. Let someone know to listen in. You can share it on social media and link to Lynch with a Leader. You can also link directly from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast, whether it's Google Play or or, um, Spotify Radio, and let others listen in. The best way to help others listen in is to leave a review. If you could do that, that would be wonderful. Well, I hope you have a great day, and I hope as you wrap up this amazing year, you'll continue to be the leader that God created you to be in the space and the place that he put you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.